back Monday morning and, you know, plop down into my Herman Miller chair, open up Excel and start running numbers for whatever deal I was working on. And I just started asking myself, like, what am I, what am I doing with myself here? What do I, what am, you know, what, what is this career path um, that I'm on? Because I, I almost got kind of addicted to that feeling that I had the prior week of, of just ultimate sort of purpose and, and fulfillment uh, that I was doing something for the greater good. And uh, that really kind of sowed in some seeds for me to start thinking about how can I do more of that on a more consistent basis and kind of weave it into my career. From Qualtrics Industries, this is Breakthrough Builders, a series of conversations with people whose passions, perspectives, instincts, and ideas fuel some of the world's most amazing products, brands, and experiences. I'm Jesse Pierwall. Today on the show, how a deep acumen in finance, a volunteer experience in Mexico, and a tip from a business school classmate came together to enable Wes Selke to discover his professional purpose and break through in the world of impact investing. I am here with Wes Selke. Wes, it's great to be with you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. So Wes, we've known each other a while and I know bits and pieces of your story, but it's like excerpts from a book, not the overall arc. So what I'm excited about in this conversation is to go a little deeper. And I think for anybody out there who maybe has started their career in a more traditional role, who has interest in exploring entrepreneurship and linking their work to a heightened sense of purpose, you have a ton of practical wisdom and guidance to offer. And I'm excited about that. So let's get into it. All right. Sounds good. So Wes, take me all the way back to the start. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Where did it all begin? I hail from the the great state of Michigan. I grew up in uh, Rochester Hills, about 45 minutes north of Detroit. Um, Dad dad worked at General Motors for uh, over 50 years. In fact, he just uh, Retired uh, a couple of years ago, um, but yeah, I grew up in, in Rochester, um, Rochester Hills, Michigan, and um, went on to uh, go to school uh, at, at Michigan. So at what point in, in your uh, early years do you n- notice that you're developing this aptitude for uh, the quantitative side of your brain and thinking about things from an econ or, or finance standpoint? You know, I, I always liked math. Uh, my mom, you know, was a teacher growing up. Uh, she was an English teacher, but, you know, really drilled in grammar, with it, which, which is related to math. Um, and uh, also was, was uh, always enjoyed, you know, other languages and uh, uh, taking a lot of Spanish uh, through the years. But yeah, I think, you know, when I got to college at, at University of Michigan, um, ended up applying to the BBA program, the, the sort of two-year you know undergrad business uh, program that's your junior and senior year, and uh, all the prereqs for that are, are a lot of quantitative classes. As boring as things like T accounts are for most people, I um, I, I didn't mind learning about them and and uh, would often uh, you know tutor uh, some of my fellow classmates and. Things like uh, debits and credits and how that all works and discounted cash flow uh, analysis. And uh, so when I had an internship in at Michigan my, after my junior year, I ended up working at Ford Motor Company in their finance division. And that kind of really solidified my uh, sort of desire to go that route. It's so interesting to me that you put 
linguistics and language into the mathematical category. I think not a lot of people think about it that way, but in listening to the way that you sometimes present and communicate, there is this logical but also kind of emotive sense to it. So I, I, I love hearing you hearing you say that and keep that on on the same side of the ledger. Yeah, as, it's very as structured, right? Grammar is very structured. Language is very structured. Uh, the way it's taught, the way it's the way it's learned, uh, is very uh, sort of formulaic. Yeah, I've always heard that uh, people that excel in language typically are are, are you know, folks that that also do quite well in math. Well, let me dwell on the Spanish immersion and the Spanish learning for a little bit. Just talk about the nature of you know learning Spanish, learning a second language early on in your life, and what kind of things that ultimately kind of led you to to be able to pursue. My my wife uh, likes to joke that we all speak Spanish because I fell for a foreign exchange student uh, when I was a senior in high school, uh, which there is some truth to that. Um, and I'd been taking Spanish for a number of years, uh, and I did have, have a little bit of a crush on a, a foreign exchange student from Spain um, when I was a, a senior in high school. And I would say that that couple of month period, uh, you know, my Spanish really, uh, really took off, re- really grew quite, quite rapidly um, out, of, out of necessity. But no, in all seriousness, uh, you know, learning a foreign language opens your mind to just new cultures and the ability to travel. I mean, it's so fun and so rewarding to be able to go to places like Spain, Mexico, parts of you know Central and South America, which I've kind of been all over, and uh, and to speak the language, you know, and and to have people uh, kind of perk up when they hear you start speaking their language, it takes you to a whole nother level of, of connectivity. With, with the culture and appreciation for the culture. And I will say also, you know, my, my parents, they started planning for a European trip for 10 years. My mom was like, in the summer of 1994, we're going to Europe. And I was like, whatever, okay, that's like so far out there. But they saved money every year to go on this big trip to, to Europe. And boy, I mean, that was just, uh, such a, a an eye-opening experience for me as a you know 17 year old to get to go to Barcelona and Paris and Amsterdam and Rome and um, Nice you know all these just amazing places and uh, that combined with my ability to at that point in time kind of hold my own with with the Spanish language really opened my eyes to all these exciting opportunities to travel and to learn other cultures. And so you start your career over in Chicago. You're with Ernst and Young and and William Blair in in those early days. But it's the story that you've told me about a trip that you made again internationally that really set you on a, a memorable and interesting course. Can you, can you tell me that story? When I got out of school, went, moved to Chicago to start my first job at Ernst and Young. Uh, after a year or two, one of my really good friends from college said. You know, I've been going to this church. It's really cool. I think you would really like it. And and by the way, they do these volunteer trips down to the Baja Peninsula of Mexico. And I think you should come check it out. So I did. I went and checked it out. And I think one of the first things I did, I went to an info session uh, at, at, that they were holding kind of after uh, services about this trip to, to Mexico. And it really intrigued me. Um, and I thought it'd be a cool experience uh, to you know check it out. So I, I went on it. Um, one of these trips in 2002. And um, it was just a formative experience for me. We spent a week at an orphanage in a very small town called San Vicente Guerrero. 
There's a lot of um, migrant farming uh, going on there. Farmers from all over Mexico come to the northern part of the Baja Peninsula to work the fields. And there's, there's just a lot of economic hardship there. Um, you know, we spent a week there sleeping in bunk beds, uh, getting to know the kids, these just beautiful children and, and um, you know, working with them every day and doing projects. Uh, and then really um, eye-opening was the, the work that we did on a couple of different evenings where we went out into these migrant farming camps and uh, served meals, brought the food that we had brought from, from Costco and uh, made a hot meal for these folks and, and then talked to them and got to know them, even prayed for some of them. And also this, I think for the... F- one of the first times in my life kind of experienced this deep fulfillment. You know, this was, you know, kind of late 2002. I'd been working at Ernst & Young for a couple of years. I think at that point, about three years. Uh, And I would come back Monday morning and, you know, plop down into my Herman Miller chair, open up Excel and start running numbers for whatever deal I was working on. And I just started asking myself, what am I, what am I doing with myself here? What do I, what am, what, what is this career path that I'm on? Because, I almost got kind of addicted to that feeling that I had the prior week of, of just ultimate sort of purpose and, and fulfillment uh, that I was doing something for the greater good. And uh, that really kind of sowed in some seeds for me to start thinking about how can I do more of that on a more consistent basis and kind of weave it into my career. But this wasn't a case of you wanting to abdicate everything you had learned and done and known and become really, really good at and giving it up for something different. This was a case, I think, eventually of you saying to yourself, well, well, wait a minute, I can combine some of the things that I'm really excellent at and lean much harder into a sense of purpose by kind of going on a new vector, kind of within the domain that I already know. So how did you think about that? That was my major dilemma uh, initially. I knew that I, I, I had that restlessness um, uh, to, you know, want to do something else. And, but I, I just couldn't pass up this, this sense of pur- purpose and this restlessness for wanting to, to you know, do more. And, and to be honest, I was scared to death about waking up and being, you know, 40, how I am now, you know, like my age now, essentially, um, waking up, you know, having a wife and kids and a mortgage and being depressed and, and being like, having like boxed myself in into a certain career path uh, that you couldn't get out of. I honestly was scared to death of, of that. But I didn't know what that meant. Uh, I don't know if there is a, a way to do this through, you know, through business and through finance. Uh, I flirted with the idea of going to Peace Corps, I thought about foreign service, you know, going down to DC, I thought about, you know, teaching English uh, abroad. Uh, going to work for a nonprofit. Uh, there were a lot of these things, but but I kind of just kept, kept coming back to like, uh, like I, I like I like business. I like finance. I'm good at it. Uh, I just I'm not sensing and, and feeling that that kind of purpose and, and fulfillment you know through my current career path. What happened was uh, someone kind of introduced me to this idea of microfinance. Mohammed Yunus, you know, who went on to win the Nobel Peace Prize just a couple of years later for his work at, at the Grameen Bank in microfinance. And I, and I looked it up online. I was like, oh, my gosh, this this is it. You know, this is an opportunity to combine my desire uh, for impact and, and doing something to make a, a positive impact in the world. And uh, it really enabling me to kind of leverage my, my skill sets in business and finance. And, and it sounds like you also were able to... I- identify concrete actions and and be with people 
to stay in dialogue around what you could do next. So what was the sequence of things that you, that you then did? So I read The Alchemist uh, in right around kind of this time, and I love that book. Uh, and the central theme of that book is listen to the purpose, you know, in your heart. Listen to it and follow it. And, and if you tap into that and follow it, the universe conspires to help you achieve that. This this guy from church had, had introduced me to his friend at at uh, Green Bank. You know, we had a call. Um, it really kind of opened my eyes to, to that world. So ultimately, you know, I decided I'm going to apply to business school and decided that, you know, business school would be a great sort of pivot point. And again, sort of there was plenty of momentum just to stay two amazing MBA programs right in my backyard. Uh, but there was just this calling, I felt, to, to go to, to Haas, to go to Berkeley. Right as I was kind of on the fence there, I get this letter in the mail from, from Berkeley saying that we're, we're offering you this very significant scholarship. And again, I felt like it was God, you know, the universe saying, stop thinking about this other stuff. Like you need to come out here. Like I'm, I'm going to make it abundantly clear to you if it wasn't already clear to you that you need to get your ass out to Northern California. I love that. Seek, seeking the signal. So then Wes, you do follow that signal. You get out to Berkeley. Obviously that's where we met and um, more or less right away at the Haas School, you're getting involved in organizations and activities related to triple bottom line investing and social impact and all of these kinds of areas that you told yourself you would. So talk about your experiences in this context and kind of what, what you were up to and again, what actions you started taking. When I arrived at, at Haas, I was very focused. Yeah, it was helpful to, to um, come to, to Berkeley having a really good sense for what I wanted to do, but also knowing what I didn't want to do. And I think that's part of learning about yourself and your career, your career trajectory uh, and why every experience is so important. Uh, you like to, to learn, to figure out what you want to do. Part of that journey is figuring out what you don't want to do. And sometimes it's easier to cross things off the list than to know what you really want to do. But over time, that kind of leads you in the right direction. And, uh, and what's also cool about that is as you get to know people and they know what you're all about and kind of what you're looking for, they, uh, they, they are kind of also on the lookout for you. And so I remember any, anytime something would come up you know, related to microfinance or impact and one of my classmates heard about it, they would be like, Hey, Wes, I heard about this. You know, this, this is something that might be interesting to you. And that's, you know, kind of what, what happened in terms of my, my internship, you know, one of my really good friends, uh, Ellie Kelly had come across a, a listing for the good cap internship, uh, uh opening and, and sent it my way. Uh, cause she knew that I was interested in those kinds of things. So I think you should tell that story because I, it really underscores that, that sense of, of purpose. Cause it came a little late in the game as it relates to internships and, Maybe you were going to go left and then you ended up going right. Yeah. Towards the end of second semester, maybe by kind of April timeframe, I had kind of cobbled together uh, an internship where I was going to be working part time for two different organizations that together would have been, you know, kind of a full time internship. And um, it, it was good, you know, maybe not great, but I was kind of ready to do it. And then, and then like a day later, you know, Ellie sent me this link to this internship job opening for a summer associate working for a brand new uh, impact investing venture firm in San Francisco that was looking for someone with a finance background to help them deal source and kind of get off the ground. And I read about it and I was like, oh, wow, 
this is this is this is actually what I want to do. And I, I was really torn about what to do. I, well, I went and met with you know Tim and Kevin, the two founders of Good Capital. We kind of hit it off. I was sort of exactly what they were looking for. They made an offer, and then I had this dilemma of you know what do I do? Uh, I, I felt obligated to you know follow through on my verbal commitment to the other uh, internship, but I also knew that if I turned this Good Cap thing down, I, I was going to probably regret it. So I mustered up the courage. I called up. You know, the two uh, owners of the two other firms that I was going to work for and just basically told them, I'm really sorry, but I, I got this other offer. I want to be upfront with you that I, I really want to take it. And um, it, it worked out fine. I, I'm still friends with those two other organizations uh, and it was the right decision. Um, and I'm really glad I, I went with it. So then you do the internship at Good Capital. You decide you then after school want to go back there full time and Pretty soon, you're getting involved in a lot of different aspects of the business and even of the social entrepreneurship and socially responsible investment community within the Bay Area and and more broadly. What were those early years of the maybe second phase of your career like and how much time were you putting to kind of learning the art and the discipline of investing in this new way? Uh, How much maybe were you inventing it and becoming? being a category creator or sort of a methodological inventor in these these early early days and early years. Good Capital was definitely a, a pioneering uh, venture firm. It was, you know, one of the first uh, firms, you know, specifically focused on social impact. The thesis of Good Capital was filling the gap for risk-taking capital for social enterprises that couldn't otherwise get access to that capital. Uh, and this whole idea that you can you can back you know for profit organizations that um, have impact fully uh, baked into uh, their their business models. Again, this was kind of a, a new way of thinking. Back then, it was more black and white, sort of what what Kevin Jones liked to call sort of two pocket thinking. Which uh, pocket is this dollar coming out of it? Coming out of is it the the maximizing return pocket, and and therefore I'm going to invest. In you know technology companies or or the stock market, uh, or is it coming out of my philanthropic pocket? And um, their whole sort of white paper that they put together when they were launching Good Capital was talking about this third pocket, where you're you're kind of doing both. You're you're looking to generate returns, and you're also looking to create you know sustainable, scalable impact uh, because you're tying it to a for-profit you know scalable business model. It was a great opportunity for me to to really learn to learn learn the venture business, learn how to diligence companies, learn how to find companies, learn how to put together a series A term sheet, uh, and then ultimately engage with those companies uh, sitting on their boards. And I, I ended up you know, sitting on, sitting on uh, three different you know, boards while I was at, at Good Capital. So what was the dominant emotion that you had? Like you're, you had done the reading about Grameen, you kind of intellectually and emotionally, maybe spiritually even knew this was the place you wanted to start to take your energy and, and take your time. But now that you're actually in it, what did it feel like? What was going on in, in your heart and in your mind in these in these early times? I, I loved it. It, it. it was kind of like a dream come true. You know, I, I had set out years earlier to find a career path that was going to weave in the, the the impact and the and the purpose, the sense of purpose in, in my day job. Uh, you know, I really enjoyed very much enjoyed the people aspect of it, which I, I, I still do to this day. And I think it's one of my favorite aspects of the venture model is it's a people business. You know, you're, you're getting to know people on both sides, you know, getting to know LPs, 
and invest in your fund and, and building a relationship with them, then getting to know entrepreneurs and founders and building relationships with them and being part of, uh, you know, helping them achieve their dreams and, and being, you know, a puzzle piece uh, to help them solve that. And so after you're at Good Capital a while, there are some new opportunities that start to emerge that still allow you to keep one foot where you are, but put one foot in, in a new place as you start to have the what became the hub opportunity. So talk about that and, and maybe talk about it in the context of the natural way that one spends one's time as a leader in these kind of burgeoning fields where it wasn't in any way unusual that you were kind of doing a lot of different leadership roles within a couple of different organizations. What became really exciting was that GoodCap became sort of the center of the Bay Area universe for, for building out the community around impact investing. And Tim Freundlich and Kevin Jones, the two founders of, of Good Capital, they're, they're visionaries and they, they, they've been visionaries um, throughout their careers. And they both saw an opportunity. They, they launched the fund. And then a couple of years later, uh, Tim spearheaded the efforts in the Bay Area to launch a couple of different uh, co-working spaces, which were known as the Impact Hub, to kind of really be the the day-to-day infrastructure and, and groundwork for this economy and this ecosystem where people can go and work and collaborate. And this was pre-WeWork and kind of in the early days of, of co-working spaces coming online in the Bay Area. But what it always had that these other co-working spaces didn't have was that sense of community and culture and like-mindedness. And, and you knew that when you walked in the doors uh, that all the other founders and entrepreneurs and, and freelancers and other workers in this space share a similar ethos to you. you know, they're, they're thinking about impact, they're thinking about purpose, and that creates a sense of community and, and, and really interesting synergistic opportunities for, for people to work together. So it's out of the hub, if I remember right, that the original seed that eventually became the place you are now, Better Ventures, um, was first planted. So talk a little bit about what led to that. And again, maybe in the spirit of this being a people business, as you said, um, sometimes there are some friction-filled situations that you still have to manage around um, things like dynamics and ego and, and different objectives that people have. So maybe talk a little bit about the the challenging elements of that, but also the opportunity that that opened up for you. It was it was just sort of this natural progression, which really has been my career, you know, since Haas, kind of one step, you know, one foot in front of the other and, and kind of building it brick, brick by brick and, and responding to the market and, and the opportunities that are out there. And so while we were responding with SOCAP and the Impact Hub to what we saw to be the opportunities in the market, once we opened the Impact Hub in a short few months, it filled up with entrepreneurs mission-driven entrepreneurs that needed help. They needed capital. They needed advice. They needed support on, on kind of navigating those early stages of, of a business. And, you know, word got out that I was the venture capitalist. And so people started lining up at my desk wanting to talk uh, to tell me about their latest business idea and ask me if I could invest in it and, and could I advise them. And I enjoy those conversations, but Good Capital was really not set up to back really early stage companies. We were kind of the earliest we would go would be post-revenue, a couple million in revenue, you know, series A investment. We'd already kind of put all of our capital to work. And so um, we saw a big opportunity there. Uh, that There was a big market need 
And around this time, there were tech accelerators coming online, you know, Techstars, uh, Y Combinator, 500 startups, et cetera. And we looked at those models and said, you know what? I think we could build a mission-driven, impact-oriented accelerator program, launch it here at the hub, and provide for the needs of these early-stage companies, you know, both with the capital and, and the advice. Uh, and that's exactly what we did. You know, I, I'd met uh, Rick Moss, my, my now uh, business partner at, at, at Better Ventures. Uh, he and I and a few other folks that were working at the hub started laying the plans for an accelerator program that we would launch in early 2011. Uh, we called it Hub Ventures. Um, and again, it was kind of designed off of Techstars, you know, this idea that you'd, you'd kind of take in a batch of companies, you know, seven to 10 companies, uh, invest, you know, $20,000 in, in each of them. Uh, and kind of help them get off the ground. And so um, that's what we did. And, uh, and then we kind of, we had a sense that, that we, re- we really had something. We did one accelerator program uh, in each of the first three years. Uh, and over the course of those three years, raised about $500,000, you know, really small amount to make these $20,000, $25,000 investments in these companies, you know, work, work with those companies uh, through that accelerator model. But yeah, we just to answer your, your, your question, though, about sort of uh, some of the friction that we felt. And I think it kind of gets to this idea of, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you need to be ready to will your business into existence. And, and that's what we look for in our entrepreneurs. You know, we look for, OK, you're smart. You have, you have a Ph.D., but can you get it done? Can you can you bust down walls? Because uh, we know that sometimes you're going to have to do that. And there were some walls that Rick and I had to bust down to kind of birth Hub Ventures, which became the, the predecessor, really, uh, and what evolved into uh, Better Ventures. There was some friction there uh, from the leadership at the time at, at, at the Hub, you know, outside of, of Tim and Kevin, but some, some folks that we had hired there to, to run it, which had, had other ideas for what Hub Ventures should be. It was tough. There were there were a couple meetings there where afterwards I looked at Rick and, and said, you know, I'm not I'm not so sure um, this is going to work. I really want to do this, but I'm not sure we, we can make it work. But we, we just kept at it. And, and then finally, you know, I saw an opportunity to go back to Tim and say, hey, look, we've got a lot of friction here. We, we think that the best course of action would be to spin Hub Ventures out of the hub. It was essentially a program within the Impact Hub. Uh, letting myself and Rick run it. And so we cut a deal. They got a, a, a small stake in, in the work that we were doing. Uh, we were kind of unshackled from uh, the organization and and had our own trajectory. And now we were off on our own and required to you know raise all of our own capital. But that's exactly what we needed. So you used the analogy of one step at a time, but to me, it feels like there's an altitude element to it too. Here that you started with the baseline of this kind of solid expertise in in core finance and investing principles. You then build on that with the mission-driven piece. You build on that again with the skill in the, the venture angle. And now yet again, you're becoming the builder of your own organization. So did you ever kind of stop and, and, and look back down the lower parts of the mountain and go, boy, I, it, this has really been quite a journey? Or did it all just feel so organic in, in each moment that it was like, no, like, like this is the journey and I'm on it and, and I don't look back. Yeah, that, that's a great question. I, I mean, I think that it's kind of like watching your kid grow up, uh, you know, they kind of grow up right before your eyes and, and you don't really notice 
uh, how much they've grown. But yeah, when I look back on the 10 or so years that, that we've been on this journey, it has been kind of one step after another, you know, just kind of keep going, building it, you know, brick by brick. It, it's happened organically. None of it happened like all of a sudden, you know, it's not like a $10 million, you know, commitment just dropped out of the sky all of a sudden for our, our second fund. It was, okay, we, we got to build this thing, you know, one investor at a time and uh, take all these calls and take all these meetings and, and just keep, keep building it. So Wes, you mentioned this idea of someone that you're investing in having a, a willingness to run through a wall and just get it done. Talk in a mission-driven context and an entrepreneurial context about what it is you are seeking and what it is you have seen the most successful entrepreneurs, the most successful builders bring to the table to warrant your focus and your time and your investment. That's a great question. Our thesis at Better Ventures is that mission-driven organizations can outperform the market. What I will say is that, number one, founders that are on a mission to solve these big problems are intrinsically motivated to succeed. And I think there's more of a a chance of success when you are intrinsically motivated to succeed. And, And secondly, you've got this halo effect where you can attract talent. You can attract resources, capital and human resources to your team. And on that first point about, you know, uh, founders being sort of intrinsically motivated, you know, we, we often ask questions when we're interviewing these founders, you know, what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Why are you doing this? You know, this is, you know, the odds are always stacked against you as a founder. So why would you go down this route? And we're looking for answers where they talk about their deep desire to solve this problem. And, and they often have personal stories about it. You know, maybe it's uh, someone who, who grew up very low income and had a hard time uh, accessing financial aid to go to a, go to college. Uh, maybe it's someone who's one of their parents uh, had, was afflicted with, with a disease and, and therefore they're working on, you know, a drug discovery platform to, to solve cancer. You know, we're looking for a kind of deep connections to the problems that they're looking to solve. And, and we think that out of that sort of well of passion for the problem comes this ability to, to bust down those walls and, and succeed. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, we're looking for mission-driven founders that are leveraging innovations in science and technology to, to solve big, big problems in the world. And, uh, and we think a lot about the UN Sustainable Development Goals. You know, there's 17 goals that were published in 2015, uh, which the UN has stated, like, if we can achieve these goals, we can achieve, you know, uh, a much more equitable, just and sustainable society. And, and that's how we that's our framework that we look through uh, when we're assessing the impact of, of any company that we're considering an investment in. Um, and that impact could be local uh, to the U.S., it could be global to places like you know Africa uh, and other parts of the developing world. You know most of our investments do tend to be uh, more local and probably even two thirds in the Bay Area. Um, and there are plenty of uh, big problems to solve here uh, domestically. Uh, but even a lot of the companies that we're backing are still focused on on global problems. You know around clean energy adoption, universal access to education, economic opportunity, those kinds of things. Fascinating! Such an opportunity to be constantly in learning mode in, in this role. It's, uh, it's very, very cool. Um, you used the phrase earlier, a dream come true. Uh, it's a dream you're still living, which is great. I want to ask you what you think is the alchemy of success for you. Um, talking about things like patience or finding the right people or 
discovering the courage within yourself or maybe even a little bit of luck. What, what do you think is behind? What do you think fuels the ability for you to have taken these successive steps to get to where you are? I think it's having faith in, in the process. And, and there's still, you know, despite the where, where we've been able to grow this in the last 10 years, there, there's still days where I doubt because, you know, venture, uh, you don't really know how good you are at venture for quite a while. It's not like stock market investing where you kind of know day to day where you're at. With venture, um, you know, you're marking up your companies when they raise, you know, future financing rounds, but you don't really know how good you are, how good a fund is going to be for at least about 10 years from launching that fund. Uh, so there, there are still times when I doubt, even though I look around and we're in this beautiful office in uptown Oakland, we've got four people, we've got 5,600, $56 million under management. And, and it is a total dream come true and, and not uh, what I had, had ever really expected to happen, you know. But uh, I think, you know, looking back, it was just having faith in the process, having the the willpower. We've just had to will this into existence. We had to will the spin out of Hub Ventures. We had to will Fund 2 into existence. You know, $20 million from 60 investors took about two, two and a half years to raise. Plenty of times when we could have just thrown in the towel because it was a ton of work. Talk about shoe leather costs. There was a lot of shoe leather costs, just running around, uh, flying around the country, many trips over to San Francisco, uh, many rejections from LPs. And I think it's like having that confidence that I think both Rick and I were so dedicated to making this happen. Uh, we deeply want to do it. Um, uh, we think the world needs, you know, the kind of companies that we're backing. Uh, and, and I think that, that that comes across in, in a lot of our, our meetings with, with LPs and, and with entrepreneurs. And we, we uh, uh, kind of have those network effects and have built the brand and have built a good reputation. And, and so um, I think, um, you know, following through on, on that reputation, being, you know, good, sort of honest folks uh, with good morals and good values and um, uh, kind of letting that, you know, come out through how we conduct ourselves in, in our work um, has really, you know, paid some dividends and, and uh, got us to where we are today. I love it. So one final question, Wes, for the builders listening here, if they wanted to know what was the most important piece of advice they should take from you, given the world as you've seen it, the world as you've experienced it, and the world as you've helped build it, what would that advice be? Find what you're really passionate about and, and, and follow it. And, and I know it, it's sometimes can feel a little privileged to, to say that. And I recognize that not, not everybody who works uh, has that opportunity, but I would imagine that most of your listeners are in that position. Don't settle for good enough in your career. Do something that's great. Uh, do something that I, I like. Uh, I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who talked about vocation uh, and vocation being the intersection of what the world needs most and what you're most passionate about. Uh, I love that idea. Find your vocation. Don't be worried about what other people are doing. It's always easy to get uh, caught up in like, oh, so-and-so has had early success and I'm jealous. Don't, don't worry about it. Take the long view of the arc of your career and follow it. You know, follow that, find out what you're really excited about, what you're really passionate about and set yourself on, on a course to pursue that. And, uh, you know, doors will open. You'll be surprised what will happen and, and you'll, you'll find it. Well, Wes, thank you. Um, it's been inspiring and full of practical wisdom and advice. And I can assure anyone who's listening that the semi-fear you had being scared to death of being bored when you turn 40 with your mortgage and your boring job is not at all 
the reality of who you have become. So congratulations on everything. And uh, thanks for giving me the time. Absolutely. Thanks, Jesse. Appreciate the opportunity. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning into that conversation with Wes. It's been so rewarding to grow in my own career and be able to watch and learn from all the great things that he has done. Wes is someone I really admire and look up to for having both the patience to find his purpose and the conviction to pursue it. And the foundational skill building underneath it all was so crucial. It reminds me of what we learned back in episode two from Geetha Morali about how it's important to always be building relevant skill sets, even if you don't know precisely how they'll help you in your career over time. Wes had an aptitude for math from a young age and a love for finance and economics and learning new languages. And when he discovered he could put those things to work in a way that would drive social impact and empower people all over the world to unlock new possibilities, well, in his words, it was a dream come true. What's also key in Wes's story is what he said about sharing yourself and your goals and dreams with people in your world. He talked about how when he was in business school, his classmates knew what he was about and what he was looking for so they could look out for him. And his summer internship, which led to his first post-MBA job, which then took him down the path he called his dream, that came because a classmate told him about it and wanted him to pursue it. So for this week's Building Blocks, it's a simple exercise. Write down one thing about your hopes, goals, or dreams that if people knew it, they could help you become a better builder. Maybe, like Wes, there's a career pivot you want to make, or maybe you're in search of the perfect business partner or co-founder or colleague. Maybe there's a learning journey you're on that people around you could help out with. Undoubtedly, there's a ton of people in your network who could help. Wes talked about how doors will open if you follow your passions, but sometimes those doors have to be opened for you. And the more people who know about who you are and what you believe and what you want to do, the more doors will open. Just ask Wes. If you want some templates and tips and tricks on how to get started, check out the show notes right here in the app you're listening to this episode on or over on our website, BreakthroughBuilders.com. That's Breakthrough-Builders.com. Hit me up through the website and share some of your reflections. I'd love to hear from you, get into dialogue with you, and do what I can to help. Take care, Breakthrough Builders, and be well. Thanks so much for listening to Breakthrough Builders. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could spread the word by leaving a rating and a review. It really does help other listeners find us. And please, tell your friends. Breakthrough Builders is a production of the Industries team at Qualtrics. The show is written and hosted by me, Jesse Pierwall. Mastering by Nate Crenshaw. Post-production and music by Clean Cuts Audio, part of the Three C's Collective. Design by Baron Santiago and Vinsuka Shindavijan. Website by Gregory Haydon. And photography by Christy Hemklock. Special thanks to the entire Breakthrough Builders crew at Qualtrics, including Ali Rohani, Jeremy Smith, John Johnson, and Kylan Lundy. Thank you.